objectif, c'est couper les doigts avec ça. Listen, you pervert, why don't you go over to Lambacon? I can use a little This is a Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton, and with me, once again, my other co-host is Mr. Cameron Maitland. Hey, Cam, how are you? Hey, I'm good. I'm back. I'm not sick anymore. Uh... But I'm sure I'll be sick again in a month or so. Yeah, that's just how this happens. So I was just in Singapore, and yeah. uh, I was flying United. And you know what I was very happy to see? They were playing The Hummingbird Project, and a lot of people on that flight were watching it. Oh, wow. Well, I think it's an interesting one, because you know all the actors in it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, just from the poster, it's like everybody's got weird hair. Jesse Eisenberg is doing that thing everybody loves that he does, where he's all weird and neurotic. Bring it on. Let's yeah. go. I think it got like simultaneously released on VOD or something. I've seen it around a bit more. I think it's on Crave now, too. Really? Okay. Well, I'm glad yeah. people are actually seeing it, because it is it sat perfectly in my oeuvre of like weird stuff that I am glad exist, but I don't know sure. why it does. A thriller is about putting up power lines. <laughs> <laughs> that were just as difficult to make as in the actual movie. I am yeah. so into it. But you brought on a guest today who definitely loves weird stuff and is awesome. Who's our guest, Cam? Bring on the host that allows me on their show uh, every other week. She is a, a serious XM personality and the founder of Hal and Roar Records. Uh, it's Allison Dore. Hello. Hi. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Welcome. We're glad to have you on the show. I'm super yeah. excited to be here. So tell us a little bit about Howl and Roar Records, because that sounds awesome. Well, thank you. It is. Uh, <laughs> we are a female-centric comedy record label, so 70 to 80% of our focus and output is on women. And we just help Canadian comics create high-quality content, so hopefully they can... Uh, keep building their careers. The idea of releasing comedy albums is still a thing. Like, you'd think that's something that YouTube would have killed. But no, the special and the album are still vitally important. Big time. And I think there's a revenue stream there that is not going to last forever because there are certain comedy channels that the royalties are immense. And so... There's not a lot of money or support in the Canadian comedy scene. And so it's like if I can help comics tap into those things while they last, that's very important to me. Who are some comics you think people should check out from your label? Ooh, what a wonderful question. So there is, you know, the OG on the label, her recording launched the label itself, Kate Davis. So that was our first album, House Arrest. And she's, again, she's a comic that has been in the game for like 20 years and never recorded anything. And it was an outrage. And, and that's part of the reason why I did it. Our most recent album is Dawn of the Ted, Ted Morris, who is Canada's funniest gay vet. <laughs> and that's veterinarian, not veteran, because that is a little snafu that's come up recently. Um, and he's also a genius and like has been in it forever. And it's his debut recording as well. So that's very exciting. Now, I love that you called it Dawn of the Ted because you also have a love of horror film and slashers and all things fun and jump out at you spooky. Absolutely. Although I do have to give the, the name is all Ted. He <laughs> He picked that name and it's perfect. I love horror movies, even ones that I don't necessarily find scary. I can often find a redeeming 
in quality. But what movie did you pick for this episode? Uh, the classic <laughs> April Fool's Day. <laughs> From 1986. Now, uh, Cam, there are three April Fool's Days released in 1986. Do you want to guide us a little bit down what those are? There's three movies that have basically April Fool's Day related slasher plots. There's April Fool's Day, which is arguably it's all prank based, but I don't think it all takes place on April Fool's Day, which is the confusing part. It's over a whole weekend. And then there's also Slaughter High, which is April Fool's Day related. And then there's also Killer Party, which is a bit confusing because it's kind of like a nesting doll of horror ideas. But uh, they're all prank related, so I guess we all just count them as April Fool's Day movies. And this is such a weird thing when I went down the rabbit hole of holiday-related themed horror movies, is that until Halloween came out, there were no Halloween or really other holiday-related movies. They did Christmas ones, and they did May Day and like pagan ritual kind of things, like uh, mm. St. Wensleydale or whatever. And then you had My Bloody Valentine was the first Valentine's Day one, and then this was the first, really the first ones of the April Fool's Day ones, and then it took almost another decade to get another April Fool's Day film. Wild. Is, is it just me, or does this seem like the perfect thing for a slasher movie? Like, the perfect premise? I don't love April Fool's Day in general. I think it's a weird day. And and I, like, I don't love pranks necessarily. So there's part of me that is like, I disagree, but really when I take my own emotional feelings out of it, you're right. It is the perfect premise because it's, is it real or is it not real? Yeah. It's yeah. about surprise and pop outs and like people messing with other people, which is like all the best slasher movies. Yes, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about what this movie is about. Just give us like a brief synopsis. Muffy St. James. <laughs> yeah. uh, Correct. The best name of all time actually i'll be honest with you i later on i got mad about the name but so uh muffy st james he has inherited this house and has invited a bunch of her, her friends for the weekend although some of these people their relationships to her are not explained and seem very loosely connected to this group but they go to the house for the weekend, and one by one, people start getting murdered. Or do they? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I think what fascinates me most about this film is that it is actually a comedy. It's not a horror movie or a slasher, but because it's before the internet, you have to market it as a slasher film. So people going to it, I'm sure, had no idea what they were seeing. It's a, I find it so fascinating because I had seen it when I was younger and I couldn't really remember it. And so watching it again, I was struck by a few things. It's it looks great. I, I think, you know, for an 80s movie, like I think it, oh, it, it looks quite good. The acting is also quite good. I think they're given terrible dialogue a lot of the time. But most of the people in this movie are good actors. And the special effects, shockingly good. Yet overall, this movie is not good. 
<laughs> no, it's very weird. And it was written by the same guy who wrote Beverly Hills Cop uh, after Beverly Hills Cop. So it's coming mm. from that comedy base. And then it's also post Back to the Future Thomas F. Wilson. So he'd already done that. And now he's doing this weird in the middle of nowhere Canada slasher movie, which tells you, you know, how Hollywood careers worked back then. But it's also weird that it got made with a theatrical release because by 85 everything in terms of the the cheaply made slasher for theatrical release had died people were seeing Mm. uh, movies like The Fly was out by then Fright Night there was a lot more like big heavy practical effects sci-fi cool stuff Uh, and of course you always had the Nightmare on Elm Street etc franchises but for a theatrical release for this kind of film is very weird and I'm not totally sure how this got made Yeah. yeah I the only thing I will say is you need to make sure that it, it is the uh, guy who came up with the story by credit for Beverly Hills Cop, uh, <laughs> not the full screenwriter, because it was originally a, a, a Sylvester Stallone film. I think he wrote that version before it was Eddie Murphy. Cam, this is uh, why I love you. You just know yeah. all this stuff. How did hey, you even find that? This is a thing you have to research a lot. At work. <laughs> it's like it's a fact that comes up a lot. It was developed for Sylvester Stallone. He didn't want it to be a comedy. He rewrote it. They didn't want him. They got rid of him. Joel Silver or Jerry Bruckheimer convinced them to try Eddie Murphy. And Sylvester Stallone's script got turned into Cobra. Huh. So Sylvester Stallone's vision of Beverly Hills Cop was Cobra. Even though Cobra <laughs> Cobra is also based on a book. It's very confusing. <laughs> but I, th- I think that this guy scammed his way into seeming like he wrote. He probably came up with the name Axel Foley or something. Well, but he also then did... Beverly Hills Cop 2 and 3. I think he just gets story by for all of them because he must oh, have. Oh, really? Up, yeah, yeah. I think he must have come up with the core concept of maybe a cop from the tough end of town. Yeah, it's it's very confusing. I just want to know if he invented the concept of casting Judge Reinhold. That's all I need to know. <laughs> True. <laughs> he might have. Maybe Judge Reinhold was a lock, no matter who the star was. But no, yeah, he, he just came up with the characters of Beverly Hills Cop. So he probably first envisioned Axel Foley. Sadly, that's the only credit he gets. (laughs) Well, how much of this film feels like a spoof to you guys? And how much of it feels legitimate? I feel like they were trying to go legit on this. I feel like it has comedic moments, but like I wouldn't categorize it as a comedy. I don't feel like they're necessarily trying to, or if they were trying to parody something... Uh, they way undershot the mark. It's weird because the director is the same guy that did When a Stranger Calls, which I lo- I think that movie is so creepy and wonderful. And he, they could have given him free reign on this and maybe weighted it down a little bit more. Interesting, because I think I think it's a spoof. I think it's actually playing on the tropes in like an almost April Fool's. I think this is way more meta than I'm giving it credit for. Than, mm-hmm. or it's, it's less meta than I'm giving it credit for. But it almost feels like it's a spoof on filmgoers who are going to this movie expecting to see a slasher movie when in fact they're seeing a comedy and everyone within it, like they're playing on all these common tropes. Mm. So when you get into it, you've got the trope of like, okay, it's all these rich kids assembling in the middle of nowhere. They all have ludicrously rich names like Buffy and Muffy and Chad. They're playing off of the old trope of there's a mental illness or there's a twin, which they add both in. Nobody actually dies in the end, spoiler alert. It's all just a big joke. And also they are like ludicrously weirdly horny, like beyond what would be in a legitimate sort of film. I, I There's just so many things in here that I'm like, 
Are they playing with the tropes? Is this self-aware? Now I'm starting to like this movie more. Yeah. Because <laughs> I see what you're saying. And, the, and I mean, my first thought in the beginning of this movie was like, ooh, these rich white kids are the worst. Because they are a lot. And the names, yeah, Muffy and Buffy St. James. I was like, get out of here. Who did that? One thing I did kind of find refreshing was... When the guys would make jokes about Biff, uh, I forget his name in the movie. Arch. He's Arch, because of course he is. Arch and his buddy kept making jokes that they were going to get it on. Mm. And I felt like they did it in a very, like, touchy-feely, not necessarily homophobic way, but in a, like, oh, imagine we're lovers and i felt like it was very progressive for 1986 like that they like especially when they were on the bed together i was like are they gonna make out though (laughs) and and i'm not against that i feel like normally when i revisit movies from the 80s i'm like this movie is shockingly offensive and this movie was shockingly not even though it kind of skirted potentially dangerous territory yeah Yeah, it's all pretty simple to watch. And it's got some kind of cute little one-liners while still continuing to have the fight moments. But there's even stuff in the line delivery that I was like, okay, so when sexy blonde number three is reading out the list of like sex activities from her Cosmo magazine, and Mm. she reads the two most vanilla things in the sexiest voice, and then like the stuff that's actually racy, she just kind of like, yeah, you know, an S&M and this and that, but blowjobs, oh guys, blowjobs. And I just thought that was amazing line delivery. I was like, okay, they're messing with us. They must be. She was the best one in the movie. Wasn't she? Yeah, Nikki. (laughs) <laughs> I yeah. love that you remembered her name. For me, she was just number three blonde because they all look roughly similar. I don't know that I necessarily have a favorite, but they're all kind of fun. <laughs> I, I mean, I like Gordon Pinsent's daughter. She's pretty good <laughs> as the stuck up one. Leah yeah. Pinsent. Yep. Yeah. But I yeah, I don't, I don't know where I fall on this because I do think that there's a lot of good jokes. And it was interesting because I, I watched it kind of twice in a short amount of time because I just rewatched it again today to refresh myself. And knowing that it's all fake, because, I mean, that's, that's also the big controversy. If you go on Letterboxd or anything, every all the horror fans are like, this is a good movie right up until the preposterous ending. It is wild how violent it is, is the one thing. Like, nobody's actually dying, but there's a bunch of, like, weird gore gags that are Mm. super high level, um, which is kind of odd. I think that doesn't suit the comedy. They, they, like, maybe overdid it a bit there. It's also, they kind of, some things they overly spell out and some things they don't spell out enough. So, with Leah Pinson's character, too... There was something like at the end, Muffy says a whole thing about like, oh, some people took the joke to a too real a place. And then there was something about like, she thought Muffy told everyone about her abortion. And I was like, I did not get like, I got that she thought Muffy brought her there for to like rub her face in something or because she told her a secret and she was being, you know, a mean girl about it. But I was also like, whoa, what? When did abortion come into it? Like, did I miss something? Yeah, it was like her interpreting the weird. <laughs> like, I, I did. I do like how she set up every room with just weird shit <laughs> to, like, mess with them. Like, I mean, the whole thing, like, what do you guys think of the whole idea that this is some sort of attraction she's going to open? Because 
that also seems preposterous. <laughs> like, nobody wants to pay to... It's not solving a murder mystery. It's literally being murdered, <laughs> which... That seems crazy to me. Also, some of the murders, she must have... Like, was everybody always in on it? Or did she, like, sneak up and whisper in their ear really quickly, like, just pretend to be murdered real quick? Because some of them happened in minutes. And then the, like, quote-unquote dead body was there immediately. Yeah, I really wanted that explanation scene at the end. More so than just, like, this is what I'm going to do. Can you tell us from the beginning? Yeah. And how, like... Especially this time, because this time I was watching for, like, how do they do all of it? And some of it's quite well done. Because, like, especially I really like the the Tom Wilson when he gets strung up, but mm-hmm. she, she didn't know there would be snakes. So the snake was, like, not her plan. So yeah. his was, like, his shouldn't have been that scary, but it was actually extra terrifying. So I liked that aspect. But, yeah, the one that drives me crazy is the guy in the S&M mask who gets his dick cut off. Yeah, like, that's, that's literally a woman going down the hall to like get a towel <laughs> and come back. And apparently this guy has been to just explain to the whole thing and is perfectly acting like a dead body. Would there not be more blood if your dick got cut off? Y- yes, I think so. I think that, that seemed maybe, like a small amount of blood. Maybe I don't know my anatomy that well, but I thought cutting your dick off was a real bleeding thing. It's a bleeding oh, thing. Other horror movies have led me to believe you do not want to get your dick cut off. But the thing is, is that it's also, well, you don't want to get your dick cut off, period. That just seems generally unpleasant. But I think they're also playing into the idea of what do we think that looks like, right? Like if you're just mm-hmm. seeing someone's dick cut off and they're, you walk into the room and that seems like what has happened, you're going to be freaking out and your brain's not going to be like, wait a minute, I should check to make sure he's still breathing. It's also weird that she thinks his dick is out but it's completely non-visible. Like, that's a little disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) Now, there is a novelization of this, so there is potential that all of this could be explained within that, but there is also an alternate ending to this. Cam, are you familiar with this? Yeah, well, I I will also say the one thing that absolutely blows it out of the water for being, like, sensical as this weird twist mystery is that she flashes back at the start of the movie, to the the Mm jack-in-the-box. So she's potentially flashing back to something that doesn't exist. Like, I don't... And then they have the the jack-in-the-box. So the the jack-in-the-box was tacked on by the producers. I know that. Like, the director did not intend that jack-in-the-box scene. Uh, But then there's also a different ending, which is essentially the same as the the jack-in-the-box scene, except all of her friends are together prank killing her. Yes, and then there's another version, apparently, where Skip jumps out after everybody has left, has cut her throat, and he's going to take all the inheritance for himself. Oh, weird. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and but so the weirdest to me, though, is the director intended it to just end happily. (laughs) (laughs) Just end with the, like, and we're going to open a resort, which I think is a terrible ending. Which makes me think that, again, this is a spoof. This isn't a straight-up slasher film. Also, why did we have the, yeah, the the jack-in-the-box at the end and then the I fake slit your throat? Yeah. I'm also kind of fascinated (laughs) by... How scary would somebody fake slitting my throat be? I think somebody coming up behind me would make me jump. But I think a fake knife squirting fake blood across my neck would pretty quickly feel fake, wouldn't it? I think so. I think that's more for the viewer rather than for the prankee. Exactly. It's not like 
yeah, something about that. Just it, it's not a good prank. Um, just grabbing somebody and strangling them would be as scary. So but, yeah, I don't know. It seems like there is a core of an interesting film here that would actually make sense in some universe. So they did remake this when they were remaking all of the movies in the late 2000s. I think my personal favorite of of the remakes is the My Bloody Valentine one. It's pretty solid and has Jensen Ackles in it. This one I made yeah. it 15 minutes into and I just couldn't do it. It's basically intolerable and has really nothing to do with this film except for it's a bunch of rich kids at an April Fool's Day party, but they're all absolutely intolerable. And they've updated their rich kid names. So Skip and Muffy and Arch and Chaz now become Milan and Blaine and Barbie and Torrance. Torrance is a a woman. Mm. That's really, and there's like a guy carrying around a chihuahua and then it's, they actually are killing themselves. It has nothing to do with April Fool's Day except for it takes place on that day. There's no prank element to it. It's very strange. Also did a remake of When a Stranger Calls, uh, which as I've mentioned, same director, love that movie. And the remake was very, had very little to do with the original and was the worst thing I've ever seen. It's so strange to me because like these are, these have such great cores in them that like if you were to explore them with a, a competent film writer and modern modern uh, effects and technology, it might be more interesting and cooler rather than just adding a bunch of unlikable characters that die in weird ways. Yeah, absolutely. This one, this one, I guess what you would have to do is figure it out. Like, I think what you would need is essentially an Ocean's Eleven montage of how she pulled it off. And then that might please people or or maybe be in on it the whole way. I don't even know. But I don't know how you could remake this that would please people because like the mm-hmm. brand is kind of dirtied in the mind because it's it's famous that people hate the ending of this. <laughs> so, yeah. Um. Can I tell you guys something weird I found out? Always. So Griffin O'Neill plays Skip. You know, at the beginning, it's it's kind of Skip's fault that the fairy runs into that guy and mm-hmm. jacks up his face, makes his eyeball pop out, <laughs> makes his eyeball pop out, and later. That same year in 1986, he, Griffin O'Neill, in real life, caused a boating. He was piloting the boat and caused a boating accident and killed Francis Ford Coppola's son. Yeah, a famous Hollywood death. And uh, yeah, the same year in a movie, he caused a boat. Well, not about death, but about disfigurement. Yeah, and a lot of people, uh, it's weird to say credit, but a lot of people think that Francis Ford Coppola's son's death is what made him stop being a good director, if that makes sense. Like, uh, they really see a steep drop-off in his uh, quality, which is kind of interesting. It's one of those things that weird speculators like to point to it, that he's kind of good and bad before and after that son's death. Which is well, a bummer. That is a bummer, but I could see that. Yeah, you that, know? that that absolutely makes sense. Like, yeah, no shit. But he made Jack, so you know. Didn't he make Jack to like make money so he could do his next passion project and cast Val Kilmer? I don't know. Maybe he just liked Jack. I've never seen Jack. <laughs> no one liked Jack, honestly. No one liked. But with a subscription to Disney Plus, now you can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was my plug for Disney Plus, and uh, we are at favorite moments now, guys. <laughs> Uh, I'll go first, just to kind of piggyback on you saying there's jokes. One of the jokes I really do like is when that when the one girl falls down the well, which I also kind of enjoy. She doesn't 
die. She's just like traumatized down a well. Um, but uh, <laughs> when they're like drying her off and she's kind of traumatized in the in the kitchen, somebody brings her a glass of water and first she goes, ah, <laughs> and then they go, relax, it's just Perrier. <laughs> uh, both her being afraid of a glass of water is hilarious and relax, it's just Perrier. Uh, that's a, that is a perfect joke. And that, that would make me kind of buy into your theory that this is all a parody. Allison, how about you? What's your favorite moment? It's interesting. Now that I think over this movie, which overall I don't think is a great movie, and yet there is a lot of stuff I really like in it. Um, okay, I'll tell you one of the pranks that is harmless in this movie that I do quite enjoy, even though I'm not a big prank person, is the chair with the weird folding legs and Biff ends up doing like a somersault out of the chair. Mm. Uh, Oh, yes. Yeah, you're right. That is a great prank. I would. Yeah, I would love that prank in real life. And then a. A gross moment that I love is the body floating under the boathouse. That's a nearly unbelievably good special effect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hard to imagine that a perfect dummy would be that effective. And yet... And yet here we are. A million yes. perfect dummies, a million perfect severed heads. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. I believe it 100%. Yeah. I think I would believe this even more if the uh, the ending theme song about mental illness was playing throughout the entire thing. I am such a sucker for a purpose-written horror theme, mm. like rock and roll or rap track. They always make me very happy. So I was totally on board for that. Yeah, good call. Yeah, because there never is actually anyone with actual mental illness in this. The Buffy character is fictional. Yeah, that's true. They, they, they do the right thing by being like, it was your own preconceptions about mental illness that were the real monster. I'm just saying it's a spoof. <laughs> yeah. Okay, all right. I'm standing by it. Uh, Duly noted. <laughs> You sold me at this point. Yeah. Like yeah. I'm I'm on your team now, Becky. Thank you. This is the hill I will die on. It'll just be you and me raging and howling. <laughs> <laughs> so that having been said, how do people find you and your work, Allison? Well, I think the best the the best place to go is on social media at howl underscore roar on all platforms. That's the socials for the record label and I would appreciate any follows. Yeah. That can happen. How about you, Cam? Uh, I am at Cam Fess on uh, Twitter and at iCram on Instagram. And yeah, whenever I go on uh, one of Allison's shows, I tend to tweet about it before it happens. So if you listen to SiriusXM, uh, I'm usually kind of every other Friday, depending on my own availability. And yeah, I should probably just say Monday to Friday, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, Channel 167, if you have SiriusXM. Yeah. And as per usual, you can find me on the Twitters at LeShrimpton. That's the masculine LeShrimpton over there. You can follow the podcast at RCM Pod. Come chat with us. We've got a lot of people there. And I think that's just about everything. So, Allison, do you want to go get a moose head? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Enthusiastic. I like it. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.